Welcome to Daybreak Devotions, a podcast version of the daily radio ministry of the McLeansville Baptist Church with your host, Pastors Mike Barnett and Corey Cantrell. Welcome you to Wednesday's edition of Daybreak Devotions this week with Pastor Mike Barnett and Pastor Corey Cantrell. We come to you fondly, lovingly, and lightheartedly from the McLeansville Baptist Church. So glad to have you with us today. And what a joy it has been this week as we have begun to look at the heart of Jesus and really challenging ourselves in this. And we hope you're being challenged in a very good way to think about your own heart, the transformation of your heart. This is a major theme in our church right now. And i got to tell you, it's been a major theme of my prayer life in the last month or so. And I really have, I'm convinced I'm seeing God work and answer prayer. And I, you know, one of the things, I might have mentioned this before in a previous episode, week before, whatever, but one of the things that I did, I challenged the church to pray for one another. And I think people are doing it. I think there are people that are literally praying not only for their own heart to enlarge for God, but for the rest of us. And I, I'm of a mind. I think I would be kind of hesitant to say that everybody's joining in on that praying, but imagine if everybody were. Sure. Imagine if every day an entire congregation was saying, God, change our heart, enlarge our heart, give us a, a bigger heart for you empty the world, flush the world out of us. God, transform us into the heart of Jesus. Help us to be like Jesus. I, you you know, we might see another one of those great awakening movements. That's where things start. I mean, you, you look at the, the history of revivals, the big great awakenings. It started with pockets of people that got serious about their own, heart, their own hearts, but also the hearts of, of their community. They, it really wasn't a... a Nation, na- nationwide, I'll get my word out, a nationwide Nationwide thing. is on your side. Yeah, it was really more of a, Lord, we right here in our circle need you, and then the overflow of that spilled out to other people as well. Well, the overflow will spill forth and run far and wide. Yes, it will. Anyway, uh, so we're going to come back to, we, we want to talk some more about the, the obedient heart of Jesus today, but before we get to that, you know what day it is. Ladies and gentlemen, this week's Wednesday's Word of the Week. Oh, and what a special edition of the Wednesday Word of the Week it is because I am yielding the floor and I'm letting Pastor Cordy Cantrell take today's Wednesday Word of the Week. So have at it. I'm looking forward to this and I'm hoping that you've heard this word before. Okay. Because well, up to now I haven't. I've used Just to be clear to I, the audience. I used it in um, our Sunday school class this past Sunday and thought that it was a commonplace word and realized that apparently I was the only person that was familiar with it with the exception of one other gentleman. So a lot's hinging on this. I, I could blow this or I could... Uh... Yes. Okay. Actually, it's more you. Like it's, Whether I know it or not, it's how you respond to my response. Exactly. Okay. So today's Wednesday word of the week is comeuppance. Well, now I'm going to answer whether or not I've, I'm familiar with that. Okay. The answer is yes, okay. but I would not have thought of that as a word, but more of a slang phrase. No, it is actually a word. Comeuppance, C-O-M-E. Can I? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. 
U P P A N C E. Ah, that's got to be some new, newfangled slang. Nope. I can, can I take a stab at the definition? Yes. Getting what's coming to you. That would be the slang version of the official definition. <laughs> well, that's why. I, that's how I know it. I the, guess the official definition is a deserved rebuke or penalty. Or oh, yeah. We would. Uh, I think maybe a, another vernacular would be desserts. He got his just desserts. Yeah, getting what's coming to him. Exactly. Um, the history of it, the first known use of the word comeuppance was in 1859. So it's not a newfangled millennial slang term to be cool, hip, and trendy. Well, no, I know that. I know it's older than you millennials. Yes, it's it's very old. My um, grandparents talk, use this phrase. Use the, the use word, the word the phrase. comeuppance? Yeah. Well, that is fantastic. Well, remember to know. your your class that you're teaching is mostly millennials or and down, right? Uh, yes, yes. There might be a few uh, young. Gen yeah, Xers. we've got we've got a few that's on that cusp of old older millennials and Gen Xers, uh, but by and large, millennials yeah. and down. But that's a term that I used in high school. Like my buddies and I would talk about, you know. Somebody's getting well, their comeuppance. I reckon. Yeah. But so, anyhow, it. it sure does. The way that we used it in the class and the discussion, I was given an illustration about how we are to love our enemies and how easy it is for us to instead celebrate when they finally get their comeuppance. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the blank stares that I got were shocking. Like, I was not prepared to have to explain what the word So the one that knew the word, how old was he? My age. Okay. Yes, that was a shout out to to Ethan Lamar. Oh. He was he was with me. He 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 was familiar with it. Well, let's be fair about that. Okay. Now, congratulations to Ethan for knowing that. Ethan, not taking anything away from you, but credit to where it's due. He has like me, he has baby boomer parents. Yes, he does. Yes. So he's a he's a millennial, but he was born later, like like my youngest, same kind of age yes. dynamic. Yes. So yeah, the, uh, that was probably the the one up he had on everybody. Or you know, I could be wrong. It could just be that he's a well-read individual and familiar with the term. Now that I think is absolutely accurate because my familiarity with the word comeuppance kind of came from more movies, literature usage, and things like and Hickville. that. And apparently Hickville <laughs> or my buddies that you know like to quote different things. So I thought, man. Comeuppance. I mean, that's. I just like the sound of the word. Like, nah, don't worry about it. He's gonna get his comeuppance. Well, if you had a dollar for every time you said it in the last five minutes, I could buy you and me lunch. We could go out right now. Yes, we could. All right. Well, comeuppance is your word of the week. I hope you'll go out and use it today. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is this week's Wednesday word of the week. Well, with Wednesday's word of the week behind us, we want to turn our attention. Back to the conversation that we started yesterday with the obedient heart of Jesus and how Jesus was able to yield to obedience to the Father because he was so secure in his identity with the Father. And so what we're going to do today and tomorrow is continue in the discussion that we had yesterday, and we want to be able to flesh this out completely. And so I turn things back over to you. As we come back to our discussion then about the obedient heart of Jesus, we're trying to encourage in our own lives and in you as a listener, in our church, we're trying to encourage people along this bottom line that we 
highlighted yesterday, which is Jesus lived such a devout and obedient life, surrendered to God and doing God's will because he was so secure in who he was. He was secure in who he was because of the relationship that he had. He knew this, he had this intimate, uh, very real relationship with God as his father. He was the beloved son. And that is the key. That's how you and I can live this kind of obedient life and have the obedient heart that we should have. So as I was talking about yesterday, Jesus being inspired and led by the Spirit and how the Spirit then at the baptism comes down and fills him, leads him into the wilderness. He comes back empowered by the Spirit. And what it does is it gives him this unflinching, confident, um, resolved, steadfast resilience to just do what God called him to do and not worry about it. I want to just say again, because I think it's important, Jesus was not going to be stopped by the fact that people didn't like him. Mm -hmm. Now, let's just ask the question rhetorically, does that ever bother us that people don't like us? Every now and then. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we all get affected by that. Well, I'm a, let's just go ahead and lay it on the table. We're not Jesus. We don't have the wholeheartedness Jesus had. We're, we're, we're growing in it by God's grace, and thank God one day we will have it, in eternity, for all of eternity, I'll be wholehearted, you know. But right now, I struggle with that. But I'm trying to learn from Jesus. Where he had wholeheartedness was largely through this relationship as the beloved son. So I want to ask this question. Obviously, it goes without saying it's already been addressed. The fact that people did not like Jesus did not deter or inhibit him from doing the mission. But I do kind of wonder, maybe this is just speculation, do you think it, I don't know what the right word is, but do you, do you think it disturbed him or, or maybe hurt him, the reality that there were people that he knew? Man, I, I love, I came for them. I, I loved them. I, oh, I, I wish they would take what I was saying, but it, it kind of troubles me that they, that they dislike me. And I don't know if I'm asking that the right way or if that's coming across clearly, but... Do you think there was a part of Jesus that although he was unmovable and unflinching, it still kind of had some kind of an impact on the inside of, man, this bothers me that these people aren't receiving me? I think the answer to that question is obviously yes. And before I tell why it's so obviously yes, I think it would be good to again remind ourselves, we already know this, but let's just say it, Jesus was 100% human. Mm -hmm. So he felt every emotion we feel. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That had to come from the fact that he was rejected. But what, what came to my mind was even Jesus saying in Luke 13, in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. And that was grief. That was, you know, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. He wept in those times, I'm sure there are many times that, uh, we don't have recorded in Scripture that, that he felt that. But I don't think that being, and, I, and I'm glad you asked the question because it's a good one to explore, I don't think that our being right or in right relationship with God and even being confident in our and secure in our relationship with God means that we won't feel rejection or mm -hmm. we won't feel the pain, but it means that we will not yield. Right. We won't yield to that. And that's the harder part for us because we feel the rejection and we want to retreat in like a shell. Hey, I said this to my wife the other day over something that, that we were talking about. 
I said, you know, for a guy that supposedly that's just you know a brute dictator and doesn't care what people think, I sure worry about <laughs> a lot about it. You know, I mean, because we do, I do, I, I, I get that. We all feel that, and it makes us pause and we stop and say, well, should I do this? And Jesus, I think, knew when he knew this was God's will, there was no pause and no hesitation. This will be done, and that comes from that that being filled and inspired by the Spirit. And so as I was thinking on all these things, I was reading from Oswald Chambers the other day. Is a collection of his teachings. The title of it was is Facing Reality. But he makes this statement, and it boy, it just nailed this. He said, if we are inspired by the Spirit of God, our lives are lived unobtrusively. We do not take the attitude of the ascetics, but live perfectly natural lives in which the dominating interest is God. And I was thinking about that last line, to be inspired, to have the Spirit of God in us that's leading us and compelling us. It's not that we're, we turn into these, what sometimes people think, you know, the, he mentioned the attitude of the ascetic being people that are going to, like, do these severe self-disciplines to try to be spiritually minded people. He says, no, if we're inspired and led by the Spirit of God, we're just living perfectly natural lives, but those perfectly natural lives are lived with God as the dominant interest of our daily life. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about many times, it's learning how to live with all things in the presence of God and a mindfulness of God and inviting God through, through, through Christ and through the Spirit into the very things that we're doing. And as I said yesterday, it could be feeding your chickens, but it's, it's doing all things with God. And so it, I think that's that's this wonderful thing about Jesus' life that we have a hard time some, sometimes connecting to because we want to put Jesus in another category. Okay, on the one hand, I got it. He's in another category. But we cannot forget that he laid aside the divinity to become a man, and he gives us the example of what wholeheartedness looks like, and part of it is being free to obey. I think the other category that you know he, he belongs in as far as for what would help us and what we're trying to talk about is he's in the category of he's already the perfect and complete package. He's the end result. We're not in that category because we are being perfected. We are works in progress. So he's the finished product. He's the end result. But he's not an unobtainable goal. He is what the Father is doing in us, molding us into. And I think that's where we have such a hard time grasping because immediately the alarm bells are going off on whoa 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 ap it sounds a little bit like what you're saying is god is going to make all of us into little gods that's not what i'm saying at all we're going to make us into perfect humans yes the the complete manifestation of his divine gift to humanity at creation he is restoring us to what we were always intended to be nothing more and nothing less. Well, let, let, let's let's just bring something very maybe tangible out. People think of God, and in their mind and their imagination, what are they seeing? I think largely they're seeing long bearded old man on a throne. Yeah. Right. Some kind of like uh, almost kind of like an Odin figure. God yeah. doesn't have a body. Yeah. God doesn't have a body. I mentioned I quoted something from Dallas Willard yesterday. I remember hearing Dallas Willard say one time. God doesn't have a brain. You know, <sighs> we're 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 all worried about the brain. We focus on the brain and he says God doesn't even have one. You know, <laughs> he has a mind, 
but he doesn't have a brain. We focus too much on those things and miss the point. And God doesn't have a body. God is spirit. According to Jesus, God is spirit. But God took a body. God became body when when Jesus, when the Word became flesh. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a body that is human that we can see and relate to. Outside of Jesus, I have a hard time relating to God. Now, there's, you know, I'm an image bearer, so I have the essence of that mark in my life, but I would be really, it would be really difficult for me in my fallen nature to find connection to God. But in Jesus, I see it. That's why we've got to focus on Jesus all the time. That's why we're looking at his heart, because as we find from him the examples, we can then, you know, we can begin to work. We have the goal, as you said. It is before us. We will be that. But my my work now, my purpose is to work with God, partner with God yes. in getting there. So Jesus' obedience is revealed in his actions, okay? We're talking about an obedient heart, an obedient life. In the two verses we read yesterday, we looked at Luke 2.49. It says that he, when he was 12 years old, he's in the temple, and Mary and Joseph come looking for him. Where have you been? And he says, how is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And then in Matthew 3, we, we looked at when Jesus shows up to be baptized. He says to John, uh, John says, I, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, this is what God requires. We're going to do all that God requires. So that's kind of where we're getting this. He had an obedient heart. And throughout his life, Jesus is saying, John six thirty eight, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, how do we know that he was living obediently, we see it through his actions. He's in the temple. He's being baptized. He's going into the wilderness. He's healing and teaching, and he goes to the cross, mm -hmm. you know, the ultimate surrender. His actions are undertaken because of his identity, okay? He has very deliberate actions. We, we lack that. We are sometimes at best... What's the good word that I'm looking for? Shaky, hesitant, sort of uncommitted yes. in what we're doing. You know, e even just maybe even our going to church. Like, I, I know I'm supposed to go to church, but when I get here, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, I'm here, but don't let anybody know I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, which we've kind of created the culture where it's easy to fit in like that. But Jesus was very deliberate in what he did. I think every day of his life, I think he was deliberate in every aspect. He was deliberate in the work. He was deliberate in rest. He was deliberate in play, but he was able to be very deliberate in action because of his identity in which he was very secure, all right? His identity, again, was based on his relationship to the Father, and that, that relationship, which was, which was very much love, like there was this ultimate perfect love relationship, but that relationship to God as his Father created this loyalty to his calling or the calls that he had in his life. So let's talk about this aspect of it. How many of us just lack a sense of calling, purpose? How many of us lack a sense of a cause in our life? I think that is a description of the overwhelming majority of people. And I think maybe it's because of maybe a misunderstanding of what a calling and a cause is. I think so many times we, we immediately go to like, a social cause, or the proverbial, well, the I have been called by God. Yeah, you know, well, I haven't been, 
I don't have a calling because I haven't been called to the mission field. I haven't been called to preach. I haven't been called to evangelism. And so because we have a, a misunderstanding of those terms, we lack the ability to enter into my calls and my calling. Well, we can clear that up. All right. With Jesus' help. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 13 through 16, we all know him well, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel, but on the stand, and it shineth unto all that are in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So according to Jesus, my calling is simply this, to be salt and light, to do my deeds before others to bring glory to God. Now we got a whole other category that comes up. When I am doing what I'm doing, why am I doing it? It may not be that we don't understand our calling. It's that we don't want to do what we are called to do for God. So it sounds like uh, we have a misguided motive. A motive and a motif. Are they the same thing? <laughs> I'm not sure. I just like saying motif. But yes, you're right. It, it's a motivation behind what we're doing. And why? Why do I do things for the praise of men? And we're about to get it on, get on the, the, the key thing again here. We do things for the praise of men because we're not secure in our identity with God. Yep. If, I, if I know that I am the beloved son of God, I don't require the praise of men for what I do. In fact, I do what I do because God is so good, and I want him to get the glory. So we've, we, we, we get that thing we're trying to do, and we're trying to be good Christians, and we're trying to live as servants and all those things we talked about yesterday. But we don't have the right motive because we don't have the right relationship. Sure. As you're talking, uh, Galatians 1.10 comes to my mind, and Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If our baseline goal is, you know what, I, I just want to be a servant of God. Okay, let's start there. But it's physically impossible to do that if... Our primary motivating force is, I want people to be pleased. I want people to look at me and be satisfied with the life that I'm living. Right there, we can't even enter into the basic identity of being a servant of God. But understanding where we stand with God enables us to say, look, whether I please men, whether everybody loves me, or where everybody has an opinion about what I should be doing with my life, all of that is irrelevant because I know where I stand before my Father. I know where I stand before God. And so if my motive is, okay, God, I just want to please you with what I'm doing, now all of a sudden we can enter into a successful and a fruitful life. Harry Emerson Fostick wrote a book entitled The Manhood of the Master, and I got a copy of this a few weeks ago, and I've been working slowly through it. It's actually written to be like a daily devotional book, and then at the end of each week he has this kind of longer writing about whatever the topic is, and the fourth week, uh, the chapter was entitled The Master's Loyalty to His Calls. Hmm. Well, I was reading this. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> Same day, I was thinking on all this. It's like, man, the Lord's just heaping it on, right? But I came to this reading on the fifth day's devotional reading, but here's what he writes. He says, Consider how true it is 
that every man has a power to represent something more than himself and that he always comes to stand for a type of character or a special human interest in the minds of his acquaintances. I shouldn't interrupt the reading, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. We've been talking about having a cause that we live for and why we do the things we do. Okay, what we're bringing into it now through this reading that I'm, this quote I'm reading from, we're bringing in to it what is the cause I'm known for, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to the reading. Can you think of Beethoven without thinking of music? Can you think of William Lloyd Garrison without thinking of the abolition of slavery? Can you think of Jesus without thinking of the cause of God and righteousness in the world? What do your fellows think of when you come to their minds? What is the reference of your life? For what do you stand in your university or community, or I'll add, your job, or for that matter, your church, mm -hmm. right? Those are pressing questions. And I thought, man, that is something to think about. You can't think of Beethoven and not think of music. Mm -mm. What do people think of when they think of us? And here's the, here's the shock value of this. Here's what hit me. How many people, there is nothing attached to their identity. You know them for these little, tiny, insignificant things. Yep. Ah, oh, he's a this. Oh, he likes that. Oh, he, he loves ice cream. You know, whatever. But you don't think about them and think of this cause, right? And I tell you, we throw a lot of rocks at people on the left or people in the progressive movement or people over there or the contemporaries or whatever. A lot of them are standing for something. Yep. And it may not even be a cause we believe in. But they're standing for it. Their life is being utilized to make an impact. And those of us who say that we're followers of Jesus, we're not identified with any cause except, well, you know, I'm a Baptist or whatever, you know. It's a real... It's gut check time. <laughs> I mean, it, I think the, the difficult thing to swallow is questions like that force us to go into places of insecurity that... We've built these walls and these masks to hide behind because we, deep down, everybody that lacks identity and that lacks a cause, I genuinely believe they know that. You put them in a quiet enough environment and those inner voices are going to remind them you're a nobody. You're you, not doing anything. You, you've got nothing. You're, you don't matter. And so we, we build these frameworks up you know, to, to kind of have something. Let's call that voices of accusation, which are not coming from God, by the way. Right. But they're, they're speaking to something that's true in that you're not living out a calling. Correct. And, and it's easy to make that agreement and say, yeah, yeah, I am a nothing. I'm a nobody, which compounds the problem. The solution to that is, no, I'm not a, no, I'm not a nobody. I am a somebody in Christ because that now propels me if I don't have an identity— if I don't have a cause that I am known for, but I am reminded of who I am in Jesus, now I'm motivated to get one. Not to orchestrate one on myself, but to go to my Father and say, Lord, what is my cause? Why am I here? I know you have me here for something. But so long as we are content to, as C.S. Lewis said, make mud pies in the slums, we're going to contend. That we're going to remain there. We're going to hide behind our what did you say? Ice cream, our sports, our, our technology, team, our... our all of the different things that we can numb ourselves with. 
Well, I know that we're out of time for today, but I hope that you'll tune back in with us tomorrow as we continue on with this. Have a great remainder of your day. We'll see you next time. And we thank you for joining us on today's program. We hope that you'll tune in with us each and every day right here on Daybreak Devotions as Pastor Mike and I will discuss various topics in God's Word. If you've got any questions, comments, we would love to hear from you at daybreakdevotion at gmail.com.